again. This is Jolene with Ghost Towns and History of Montana. Thanks for joining us for our latest podcast. Now, many of you out there have probably heard of the vigilantes. They were out here in Montana dealing out justice. But maybe you haven't heard of a similar group who was also out here on the Montana frontier handling some business. And they were known as the Stranglers. Now, this story appeared in the Bozeman Courier newspaper on July 15th, 1927. The Stranglers. The Montana vigilantes had their origin in necessity. In the very early days, road agents held up stagecoaches running between Bannock and Virginia City, robbing and even murdering the luckless passengers. Murders were committed openly, and the offenders were not punished. The law had not yet reached this wild western frontier, and each man was a law unto himself. Henry Plummer was the first sheriff, and he was a secret member of the organized band of robbers, and with his assistance, for several years, they carried on a reign of terror. Life was not safe, and the offenders were, of course, not apprehended. It so happened that a miner who was a member of the Masonic Order died of mountain fever. He was the first man in many months to die a natural death. The funeral ceremonies brought together most of the members of the Masonic Order in that locality. It was the first time that a Masonic assemblage had taken place. And taking note of the handful of members, it was suggested that after the funeral, they retire to a secluded spot and get acquainted. Prior to that time, no one knew whether his neighbor was or was not a member of the outlaw gang, and there was no one to whom they dared speak. The death of that miner was to become a blessing, for before the meeting broke up, the first steps had been taken to organize the vigilantes of Montana. Shortly afterward, an honest miner was shot down in cold blood, and the vigilantes resolved to try the murderer. He was tried in an open-air court with Wilbur F. Sanders acting as prosecuting attorney. Sanders knew he was taking his life in his hands, but fear was unknown to him. He presented the evidence to the jury and argued for conviction. The verdict was guilty. Sanders moved that the defendant be hung at once, fearing that the outlaws would rescue him from the guards. There was no jail. The motion carried, and as the pale moon came out by the light of a bonfire, the first man to be executed in the state of Montana was hung from a convenient limb. This was the first step taken in the curbing of crime and must not be confused with the other organization, which later formed by the big stockmen on the plains of eastern Montana near Fort McGinnis for the purpose of stopping the rustling of cattle and horses. Fort McGinnis is nearly on a line drawn from Lewistown, Montana to Malta, Montana, and was something like 18 or 20 miles north from Lewistown. You will see that the underlying motive for the forming of the two organizations was 
is very different. It is the latter of which I wish to speak. There were no railroads in those days, and all the freight which reached here was brought on river boats that plied the Missouri, which was navigable as far as Fort Benton. Along the banks of the river were a few venturesome men who wielded the axe and pulled the crosscut saw, piling their wood along the banks of the river. This wood was sold to the boats whose engines were wood burners. These men were commonly called wood choppers. At various points along the river were trading posts where a few of the necessities of life were kept and sold. Among them was one located at Rocky Point, which is nearly due south of Malta, about 60 miles. This trading point was conducted by the firm of Marshall and Ritchie. Among the possessions of this firm was a small gray mare, used more for the children's pleasure than anything else. She was usually close to the ranch and easily caught. Sam McKenzie, having drunk too much fire water, as many breeds of his kind did in those days, wanted to go to Fort McGinnis, and he had gambled away his outfit and was afoot. Not wishing to tarry longer at Rocky Point and not wishing to walk, he appropriated the little gray mare, and by the afternoon of the next day, he rode into Fort McGinnis, or rather the DHS Ranch, which was close by the fort. The DHS Ranch was a big outfit, and the initials are those of the names of the three owners, namely Danzer, Hauser, and Stewart. The DHS Trail is one of the main thoroughfares now leading south from Malta. The junior member of this firm was Granville Stewart, a very tall man with light brown hair and blue eyes. It was he who is reported to have become the leading spirit of this second so-called vigilante body. To distinguish between the two organizations, this latter one was commonly known as the Stranglers. The birth of the Stranglers took place shortly after a couple of riders from the Marshall and Ritchie Trading Post reached the DHS ranch at Fort McGinnis and found the little gray mare and then thoroughly sobered Sam McKenzie. A general discussion as to what should be done with McKenzie took place, in which it is reported Granville Stewart took an active part. At the conclusion of the discussion, McKenzie was advised on the narrow he was to be hung by the neck until he was dead. McKenzie was placed in one of the guardhouses of the soldiers' barracks at the fort for safekeeping. He found the four log walls of his jail too dark and requested the loan of a violin. Someone at the fort had one and loaned it to poor McKenzie, who began fiddling and dancing. First, he would play for a time and then he would dance. He was a good clog dancer, and so it was that he wore away the hours of the long dark night. All night long you could hear the shuffling of tired feet and the plaintive song of the old violin as McKenzie tried to keep up his courage. At last the sun appeared in the east. 
the call of Grubpile came from the DHS ranch. But the old violin still sounded its pleading notes for forgiveness, and still the weary feet of the condemned man shuffled and shuffled. His brain tried to fathom by what means of fate he, among all the thousands of men who had committed greater wrongs, should be singled out to be a victim. The cow outfit rode over to the barracks, the door opened, letting in a flood of bright June sunshine. The strains of the violin ceased. The tired feet stopped their shuffling and stepped out into the light of early day. A lariat was thrown over his head and he steadily walked to the foot of a convenient cottonwood tree. The other end of the rope was thrown over a limb, many hands, gave a heave on the loose end of the rope, and poor Sam McKenzie was hoisted from the ground. And so the name of Strangler came to be applied. Lally Doney was freighting by Bullcart from Rocky Point to Fort McGinnis. He knew poor McKenzie. He had pulled into the fort after dark when the night air was laden with the tang of sage and the sweet odor of the wild rose. He had listened to the plaintive appeal of the violin and the shuffle of the tired feet. He rested a day before returning to Rocky Point. Poor Mackenzie's body was still swinging at the end of that rope, while a chorus of meadowlarks was performing the only funeral rite. Lally reached Rocky Point in due time, turned his horses loose and rested for a few days with his family. It was early one morning a few days later when a band of grim riders rode into his place. He was questioned as to his vocation and whereabouts. His explanations were not satisfactory. And but for the timely arrival of Marshall, much of this story would not have been told. As it was, his life was spared and he was forced into service. His duty was wrangling horses. That is, he was to herd and safely keep a number of extra saddle horses the riders had brought with them. While they made a trip down the Missouri River, the horses were to be kept in good shape and carefully guarded day and night until the return of the Stranglers. For such was the outfit and this was the beginning of the famous raid down the river. It began in June 1884 and resulted in the hanging of practically every person including some women who lived on the banks of the Missouri. John Ebaugh, now a resident of Malta, Montana, was a boy of about 17 riding for Smith Brothers. He was on a saddle horse one morning looking for strays and generally enjoying the beauties of the matchless climate and the air of Montana when he sighted a band of riders approaching. When they reached him, a rope was thrown around the neck of his horse. His gun was taken from him. He rode his horse, which was led three or four miles, when another band of riders was joined. Gene Stillman was in charge of the other band, and he at once ordered Ebaugh released, stating he knew him and that John was a rider for Smith Brothers. Ebaugh was ordered not to say a word, an order which he obeyed to the letter. 
The Stranglers left Lallydoni in charge of their horses and proceeded down the Missouri River on their mission. George Plummer, no relation to Henry Plummer, the sheriff, was a squaw man having married a Chippewa girl and his family lived on the banks of the wild old Missouri River. His log cabin was on a flat surrounded by diamond willows and giant cottonwoods. In front of the cab in the ever-restless and changing river swept by on its way to the great gulf. Behind the cabin rose the pine-covered breaks commonly called the Badlands. It is next to impossible to draw a word picture of this extremely rough and broken country. The name should suffice. It is quite apt. Catherine LaSanta was a daughter of George Plummer and now resides at Malta. She was living with her parents in the log cabin, and it is due to her information that I am able to give the following facts. Plummer was a noted character, a hunter, trapper, and man of the wilds, known by all and known to be honest. At the time of this story, he was cutting wood for the steamboats, thus making a living with his axe, gun, and traps. On the next bottom, below him, lived Sam Favor, or Lefevre, the exact spelling is not known, and Charlie Gibbs. They were wood choppers and had lived on the bottom about a year at the time of this story. Sam had blue eyes, brown hair, and was rather stout. Charlie was dark, had brown eyes, and was probably over six feet. Both men were from 25 to 30 years of age. Sam and Charlie, as they were known to the Plummer family, were kind to the kitties and often made a visit to the Plummer home. Work was exchanged between Plummer and the boys and a friendship grew up between them. Nothing was known of where they came from. It was very bad etiquette to ask a man from whence he came in those days in Montana. And that old custom still is quite in style. A well-beaten path had been worn between the home of Plummer and his two neighbors, Sam and Charlie. It was in the afternoon of a June day, 1884, that Frank Belgrade, a breed and known rustler, stopped at the Plummer home. He was riding a big buckskin horse with a blazed face and watch eyes. He asked for something to eat, but as Mrs. Plummer knew him and what he was and knew also the law of the land was not to give aid or succor to a rustler. She was loath to turn a hungry man away and yet disliked to violate the unwritten rule not to help. She decided the matter in a hurry. Into the house she ran, grabbing what food was quickest to get. She bade him make haste. Belgrade told her that there was a band of men coming down the river hunting for him and that he was going to the lone tree for the night and would be able to escape them, he thought. As he swung into the saddle, he waved a farewell to the kiddos, who stood watching the big buckskin and his burden of flapping chaps and clanking spurs disappear into the shroud of the approaching night. The bitch lamp was lighted, a rag in a saucer of grease, and the task of putting to bed the little ones was well on its way when the sharp clatter of horses' feet was heard. The light was extinguished. The chatter of the children hushed. And George Plummer, with rifle in hand, stepped quietly out the door. 
mother and children huddled in the darkness, always fearful of the worst. Some twenty horsemen filed past, never stopping to look or inquire. They took the well-worn path leading to the home of the two men, Sam and Charlie. Darkness soon engulfed them, and the sound of retreating hoofs ceased, and once again the strange sounds of the night resumed their sway. At the break of day, Plummer, without waiting for breakfast, shouldered his rifle and took the path leading to the home of his neighbors. When he returned, he bade the family follow him and again led the way down the little path to the home of Sam and Charlie. When the kitties reached the clearing, they failed to receive the good-natured greeting of Sam and Charlie. The ground was all trodden down with horses' hooves, and the door of the cabin was open, and upon looking in, they beheld poor Sam and Charlie hanging by their necks from the ceiling of their own home. Loving hands cut them down. They were tenderly laid out on the floor while Plummer dug two graves. The children gathered wild flowers which were strewn over the faces of the dead men to soften the weight of Mother Earth as she reclaimed her own. So far as the plumbers knew, these men were honest, hardworking. What their past might have been, they did not know. During the year they were neighbors, they had been cutting wood. There were no letters or memorandum by which relatives could be advised. About noon of the next day, the stranglers filed back past the plumber home. They were leading a big buckskin horse with a blazed face, and from the pommel of the saddle dangled a pair of clanking spurs and flapping chaps. The saddle was empty. Well, thank you again for joining us. Be sure to check us out on Facebook. We're Ghost Towns and History of Montana. Or you can follow us on Instagram, MT Ghost Towns. Until next time, you all take care out there.